Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI. We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps. Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MLOps Live. We're starting another episode here. I'm Sabine. I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Sabine. Hey. So we are joined today by our guest, Adam Straka. We're going to be talking about building an MLOps culture on your team. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me. Very excited. We're very excited, too. So just to introduce you to our audience here a little bit, Adam, you have a background in science, right? You've kind of moved from chemistry to photon science and you're a doctor of engineering. So that was a, yeah, I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do when I started out and loved science. I've always been a massive nerd. So loved science, went on to do chemistry because I loved that. It was really hard. So fell out of love with it a little bit and became a bartender. So what's not on my CV normally is I was a, competition cocktail bartender for a few years, traveled around Europe making drinks for a living, and uh, soon realized that I wasn't going to make enough money to own a bar by working in one. I wasn't that good. So I went back to do photon science, which was like a transition to more physics stuff, because I was better at that throughout my my degree. That led me towards the end of that. I then um, first started coding. C was my first language, programming microcontrollers. So in at the deep end, Went from, loved that, I wanted to do more of that. So got into a computational physics doctorate and the entity was brilliant, really, really good. And it was only towards the end of that I kind of discovered machine learning and I suppose the rest is history, yeah. Yeah, you decided to go down that rabbit hole in earnest because, yeah, you have been putting out lots of content now about data science specifically and also some organizational and social aspects of MLOps that we're going to get into a bit more today. So just as a reminder to everyone, a bit of housekeeping, this is going to be released as a podcast later on in a couple of weeks. So you'll be able to check out today's talk on wherever you get your podcasts normally. And it's a fully interactive Q&A. So we are here to answer your questions with Adam. So all you need to do is raise your hand. If you're here in Zoom, you can also type your question in chat and we'll pick it up. So let's get into it. To warm you up, Adam, how would you explain building an MLOps culture in one minute? Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know if I could do it in one minute. It's quite hard because it's such a new topic. I would probably point people at the massive advances we've had in software engineering over the last 10, 15 years, right? And the, the rise of DevOps and microservices and things like that. Now, add another whole use case, layers of concerns, other ways for things to go wrong. And that is what we need for MLOps, right? So machine learning models are, there's a big difference. And I've got internal wiki documents on this that I'm looking to turn into a blog post about the difference between normal software, like normal software, right? That is like, you put the same inputs in, you get the same inputs out. And machine learning models, which sometimes are a mixed bag and the different concerns. So I would say, imagine DevOps, but again, with loads of other ways for things to go wrong. And that's why MLOps is important. And you need to build it culturally because we're not actually 100% sure on, on whose responsibility it is yet. Excellent. I believe that just about fit inside one minute. So excellent job there. <laughs> All right. Over to you, Stephen. Yeah. Thanks, Adam, for sharing that. And to give a more broader context or a more vivid overview, would you love to tell us what constitutes a, a good MLOps culture? What do you think is a good MLOps culture in your opinion? Yes, certainly. So again, it's really difficult. I took the job at Origami actually because I thought the job, so head of machine learning engineering, I thought it was quite a weird one to see actually a small startup pitching for that kind of role because machine learning engineering is quite new. Not many folks outside of the massive tech companies talk about it that much. This was about two years ago now, so things have changed since then quite a lot. And I I stepped in saying, this is going to be a challenge because even a lot of data scientists don't get this stuff. They don't they're not happy to own it, who gets it, 
And so I stepped into a very high maturity software engineering culture, really everything done really well, really high engineering standards, like they've got like full of super talented people that know their stuff. They just don't, they've never touched data analytics, right? And I come in and go, well, this is all, there's all these challenges around, you've done stuff that's optimized for the way certain things need to be, but they, that makes life for a machine learning model quite difficult. And we need to start addressing that. And so the foundation of everything is going to be education, right? And communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I often think that actually most organizations aren't limited by rate of development or the market size or anything like that. I think actually most organizations' real bottleneck is the rate at which they can understand stuff and can you understand new things and what changes are going to happen. So bringing that educational piece to the forefront is really important. And then trying to actually define, well, what do we mean by MLOps? We can't just say, you can't just say what I said, like it's, it's just DevOps for machine learning. You need to actually talk about, well, why is that a problem? And a big an example I like to use to kind of hit the message home is say we've built a lovely microservices architecture, it's all restful or whatever, and I stick in a model that needs retrained once a day and it calls the last three years worth of data and like tens of millions of row every single day. Do you want me doing that in production on your like on your production systems? And and all of a sudden that becomes like, oh actually I'm not really sure on that. And or this idea that even retraining, like, what do you mean it needs retrained? And the fact that these things rot and they die if you don't tend to them. So that's just a whole new level of concern because, again, conventional software, like non-machine learning software, doesn't do that. As long as the use case doesn't really change, like, it typically keep doing its job for years and years and years. Yeah. And let's set a pretty good tone now for the audience. And can you give us some bit of a perspective on the use cases at Origami Energy? And then, you know, how MLOps comes to solve them, then we can zoom into some of your war stories or problems you had figuring out the culture there. Mm-hmm. So origami is a really interesting place and it's, right. it's the reason I took the job. So for anyone that doesn't know the energy industry, it's been this way for a long time. So the UK has one of the most advanced sort of energy markets, right? And energy is traded in half hourly chunks. So every 48 periods a day, there's a settlement period and supply must meet demand, right? That has to happen otherwise, all sorts of problems. And it's the national grid's job to do that. And so they're traded on open markets. So you can bid in advance and things like that. But when it comes down to like just before, then obviously say like a power station trips out, there's a fire on some transmission lines or something. Well, that needs to, you need to balance that. So there's a big rise at the moment about battery assets because they can respond really quickly. Now, go back to the 90s, and that's really easy to forecast how much I'm going to produce because it's just whatever I'm going to put into my gas power station, right? Just sort of linear function or whatever. Add loads of renewables to the system where we are now, and all of a sudden, it's chaos. We don't know. We can't predict weeks in advance what we're going to produce because we need to do this this understanding of the state the actual country is going to be in. So origami is really interesting because we're trying to tie up lots of myriad data sources. You've got the physical data, so real devices out in the field stuck to a massive battery that tell us temperature, charge, like what it's doing, like logging metrics, like IoT device metrics, coming in at like 20 hertz, right? Then you've got the market data, which is like 30 minutes, sort of what were the current prices, what who passed what auctions, blah, 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 what trades were successful. Then you've got contractual data. So like these might be 18-month kind of windows of like, okay, this person in this market makes this much money. So You've got all these time domains you've got kind of smushed together into something that all feeds into what's the price going to be? Like, are people bidding over and under? These are hard problems to solve. And not least because actually those data sources are a bit of a mess. They're all over the place. They're owned, some of them are owned by public bodies, some of them are owned by private companies. Some of them are written on napkins in office spaces somewhere. So you've got to ingest all this stuff and bring it together. Now, that's all well and good. That's fine. So the big one for me, and there's a few kind of core pillars of MLOps I like to think about. Reproducibility is one of them. And it's the thing that's getting a lot of attention in the academic space at the moment because it turns out none of it's reproducible. Right. Uh, so how do I know what decision was made at a time if all the data changes, if I can't go back? So things like being able to do time travel um, it become really important. What was next month's forecast today compared to next month's forecast three months ago and how have they changed and things like that. They, these things become really important. 
for us. So there's lots of other things. There's like, yeah, with kind of lots of POCs, there's flat optimization, which is a really interesting problem that gets lots of very, very clever math boffins uh, excited about what we're doing. But yeah, it's a very interesting space with lots of sort of problems to tackle, I suppose. Awesome. Yeah, definitely quite interesting, I would say. And how's the team set up there? So that gives, again, proper perspective. <laughs> yeah, so we follow, we not like religiously, but we, we sort of follow the Spotify model from that, the, the very famous slide deck about squads and guilds and things like that. So we have a number of squads that deliver to like business streams, so essentially customer-aligned domains that deal with what those customers need, which allows them to be autonomous and isolated and do their own thing. Then there's a few platform teams as well. There's kind of two platform teams at the moment. There's one that builds our kind of UI frameworks and our user interactions sort of stuff. And then there's the data and analytics sort of the energy data platform team, we call them, which is the goal of which is to kind of abstract some of this away because that's the challenge. Right? I kind of hinted at it earlier. Who owns this stuff? Right. We've come along. Okay, we've got MLOps problems. Or problems. We, just, we need to figure out our own strategy. Do I hire in loads of expensive machine engines? We're still a startup. We still have budgets and stuff, right? We've got infinite money to spend on this stuff. Do I retrain everyone? Do I do I take really talented software engineers off of what they're doing and kind of bother them with more context switching and stuff like that? So that becomes really difficult. So our approach has been to try and develop a bit of a platform, which kind of gives you a lot of stuff out of the box that, that kind of answers the, the development team's use cases for all this stuff as and when they need it. And that finished platform possible becomes really important because you go like you sit as you've seen the tool space is expanding so rapidly that where do you start? What do you do? How do you use it? What our approach want, we want to be? What's the smallest thing we can do that solves our problems now? And let's solve it in a way that we can iterate on. Happy that we might rework some stuff in the future. We might throw stuff out. So a big believer that agile is probably the best way to de-risk that for the organization. So I'm sorry, I hope that answers the question. It's essentially number of teams doing software for customer domains and then a few teams that support trying to kind of do the stuff that serves them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Squads that serve each stakeholders. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that, Adam. And would can you be able to quantify in words what you think is the ML of culture? Say, for example, you talked about reproducibility, for example. Would you quantify it as a culture you guys strive for in everything you do, in the end-to-end workflow, or are there other things that you all look out for as well, as well as some principles you would lay down on the team? Yeah, so I did loads of work on this back in a few, back in like December, January this year. Well, yeah, January this year. I was doing a lot of work on this to see, is there a consensus out there on like what's important? Like what's it about? What are the principles? Because we don't want to do, I didn't want to write anything tools-based because that will change, right? Someone will win that game eventually. And then what I've written will be wrong. So is there guiding principles that I can point really talented software engineers at and they can just they can go, okay, I see why this affects our decision-making. Because I pulled this up actually just so I can reference it here. And they were essentially, I called them out from, and this, sorry, I did that by looking at lots of other people's advice. So things like uh, there's links from Google, Microsoft, Amazon. There's an example from a Spotify blog. There's a few other like big SaaS platforms that have done, like people you would expect to kind of have an idea of how to do this. I read either blog posts or examples of what they did, and I tried to distill that into something that was like pillars and things. So for me, these are what came out, right? Automation, basically, if you can automate the thing, do it and do it in a way that means it's kind of modular and flexible so you can replace it so that you're not having to rethink over and over again. And you can scale that way, which becomes another one, scalability, right? So your automation scalability, because rewind a bit, okay, well, my MLOps pipeline could be manual. The whole thing could be manual. If I have one model that gets updated once a year, I don't need any tools. I, I can have a data scientist do that in the notebook. So as long as it gets into deployment, I'm not done, right? If I've got tens of thousands of models that get updated all the time, that doesn't work. So think about scalability on top of your automation. Continuous X was, a, was one I really liked. I can't remember where I stole that term from, but I'll find some links and I'll share them. But this idea of continuous X, what I thought was really good. And it's this, that you've got continuous integration and continuous delivery. You also need continuous monitoring. Is my model starting to rot? And then continuous training. Like, and if it is, if my model has hit a threshold whereby it's no longer performing, I need to retrain it. And you can also deploy some of that monitoring onto like data quality, I think becomes important, what you're feeding your model and start to get into concepts like data drift and concept drift and things like that. So at automation, 
scalability, continuous sex, reproducibility, really important. I like, um, big fan of Docker, Kubernetes for things like that. So just save everything in some way so that you can play it from scratch. That's really good. Collaboration, I think is a massive one from a cultural point of view. So a lot of them are like kind of toolsy things, right? But collaboration, I think is like a real cultural one because it's too big, right? It's too big for any one person to get. Eventually that will change. I think as the education levels generally kind of peter out, I don't know how long the MLE will be around for, but collaboration, build your things in a way that other roles and other teams can participate and help, can do their bit, can understand it as like a black box that they can handle and, and improve. And it's not just kind of one person, that unicorn sort of machine learning data science role, right? And then the final one's quality. Like, can you really focus on the quality of what you're doing? Not just code quality, but things like data quality standards, data quality testings and things like that and safeguarding stuff. Protecting. So one I, another use case I like to put up in presentations to scare everyone is um, we've got, we've PFC'd some stuff around automated trading decision-making, right? It's like, like some sort of intelligent or artificial intelligence that does trades or makes trade decisions. Now, that could be a rule-based thing. That's actually really common, just logic, rules-based, right? Or it could be something using ML, right? Data quality is a really good one for this. So this thing is looking at future markets to, for a battery. You've got a 10 megawatt battery. It's going to make loads of money every half hour, great. You accidentally, because of some random corruption in a data stream or whatever, some data quality issue, a charging price goes negative. You've got no data quality to protect you from that. This battery thinks, great, I can make loads of money by charging at this point. Now, a human would spot that and go, that's dumb, don't do that. But these things are stupid, right? They're just going to do what you tell them. So this idea that you need to safeguard end users from very poor decisions from these things becomes quite important. I think that you can bundle that into MLOps because just to final rambling now, but just to finalize, for me as well, MLOps isn't just about getting models into production. It starts at data collection. It's like the whole end-to-end. How do I feed the model and how do I retire the model and things like that as well? Yeah, and just before we go to some of the community questions, it does seem like most of these decisions in shaping the culture are technical. Right, these are all technical, mostly technical decisions. Are there kind of like non-technical decisions that also shape the MLOps culture of a team that you found? Maybe it could be disagreement to stakeholders and somehow, and then we find a way to amicably resolve that or stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I think there is. So they are, they can get very technical. I do agree. The on a team by team basis, actually, it's the appetite for it can be at both ends of that spectrum can be really bad. So. If you have a team that don't want anything to do with it, that can be a bit of a challenge because you need that. I think you need the collaboration and the engagement to make sure what you're doing is at the right level for them. That's why like, I'm not a big fan of just going, right, we're using this platform, it does everything, off you go. At the other end, though, if a team really, really wants to do this stuff like too much, they could end up building too much of their own stuff or tweaking it and playing with it too much and not getting the benefits like that kind of 80-20, those benefits. Then you've got the whole thing around, well, whose responsibility is it if it falls over? Like who's going to own that you build it, you run it thing? Or if you need to parachute in a data scientist to unpick the problems, like that's probably problematic if they're not embedded in the team. And you have to, I'm not going to give any sort of sweeping blanket statements on how to fix that. I think you need to, on a team by team, case by case basis, figure out what's the right sort of approach for you. Makes sense. Yeah, so we do have some questions here in chat. Vincent would like to know, you already mentioned a little bit some of the tools you like to use, but Vincent wants to know what your current MLOps tool stack looks like. Yeah, again, so our teams are fully autonomous, can do what they like. So depends on where you are, really. Some of the guys use DVC for data version control. I think that's a really good tool. ML Flow was here before I got here. It's one of the ones I probably would have pointed the team out anyway because I think it's really good. I've had a lot of sets in other places with Kubeflow. I think that's if you've an organization that has like quite a high level of Kubernetes maturity, that can be quite a useful. It's kind of there for you. It's done. It follows patterns that tried and tested. There is a bit of a challenge, and I, a word of warning I give to people is: don't just go down the the prescribed route that like Google say or or Amazon say, right, because you probably aren't that scale. So their concerns and a lot of the roadmaps and stuff that they put out are just too big for what you're trying to do. 
from a data quality point of view, I'm a massive fan of a, there's a really sort of unknown tool called TDDA, Test Driven Data Analysis, that I love, which does automated constraints detection. And that's really quite powerful metadata generator thing. Couple that with something like Great Expectations, and that tends to solve the kind of data quality side of things. As you probably guess, yeah, Docker, Kubernetes for packaging stuff up and sort of sending it out. Depends on the, yeah, the, the part of the problem. That's the problem, right? There's so many bits. I'm thinking, you know, every team uses a slightly different thing depending on what it is they're doing. I'm seeing there's cool developments out there in the space. I'm a really big fan of some of the tools and platforms that are out there and growing, and I'm keen to see where they go. I need to do more kind of toying and testing on my own because I don't want to play around with it at work, really. And another thing I'd say, again, I do believe it's the end-to-end bit. I'm a big fan of like the Delta Lakehouse kind of architecture, so Delta Lakehouse type pattern for storage and sort of processing of data, both stream and batch, because it gives you a lot of the stuff I've talked about, like scalability, the time travel thing's brilliant so that you can go back and reproduce and it kind of safeguards you from your own mistakes, so you do your retail wrong and stuff like that. So at the moment, that's one of the bigger projects for us is spinning up a, a bit of a self-service Delta Lakehouse template that teams can just like put a bit of config in and it, it solves that problem for them as their persistence thing. So yeah, maybe not a satisfying answer, but a mixed bag, I suppose. Right. Thanks for sharing those tips. So it's also probably highly individual, this. But the follow-up question is, what's your take on build versus buy? Yeah, I used to always joke, like, I want to do the least work possible, right? So just absolute minimum work I can possibly do. There's better ways of putting that. And one I've heard is, especially, and I come from kind of startups all my life, right? So this is maybe different at big organizations. But for me, you've got a limited budget every year to get to, like, kind of the unicorn phase, yeah? And then it's all fine, do we like? So you have to pick wisely what you're going to spend your time and effort and money on. Do you want... To your very clever people to rebuild something like Kubeflow or MLflow from scratch in a specific kind of way to them? Probably not. Is that your differentiating kind of product offering? Is that your USP? Is that defensible for you? Yeah, if you're an MLOps platform, yes. Otherwise, probably not, right? So big fan of buy if you can afford it. The thing is, is like sometimes you vendor lock and then actually you get stuck as well. So it's a hard one. But if it's your thing, if it's like the reason de- for your organization to exist, definitely build. That's your IP, right? Buy things or get other people to do it for you if possible. But that's expensive. Right. So it's really a matter of kind of evaluating if that's your most valuable activity or work or not. You have to be careful. So I've said that, but then it's very tempting to go for an all in one end to end platform solution, something like Data Robot, right? That's. Right. Like does everything for you, and not like, right. I don't have to hire anyone. This is great. <laughs> and I'm not boohooing Data Robot here. I've never actually used it. I've, I've kind of obviously followed it over the years. But those big platform end to end, this is the whole solution thing. That kind of then limits future architectural decisions, which is harder if you're not a very like if the cost of changing stuff in the future is high. A lot of financial services organisations are like this, where they there's a lot of governance and red tape that goes into any decision. Anything's a big commitment. So though it can be tempting and then you can be a little bit stuck with what you build in the future. Feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30-second pitch of Neptune AI. Okay, so we help with model metadata storage and management. That means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app. You can organize and display it however you want, search, debug, and compare experiments, datasets, and models, save your production-ready models to a centralized registry, and collaborate on your projects across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack. Just plug us right in. For more, go to neptune.ai or check our docs. They're pretty good. I wrote them. Hope that was 30 seconds. Back to the show. All right. And on the other hand, you've been getting a bit into this as well, but Omar wants to know, what do you think are some MLOps principles that are tool agnostic? Yeah, so I think I'll share some of this document I've written. I like to hope that the ones I've talked about are tool agnostic because I, that's how I wanted to approach them. And actually, so one way like I like to frame them then talking to people is... This idea, it's in the Data Mesh book, if you've read that, and they talk about affordances, like design things on what does it afford you to do? So data quality, right? What does having a really, really sort of over-the-top data quality solution, what does that afford me? Well, it affords my users and me trust, and I, I know that I kind of am protected against making mistakes. I've got fret too much about what's coming down the pipe. 
scalability, right? So if you, yeah, okay, full-on Kubernetes or like Spark solution that's super scalable, what does that afford me? Well, I can go from my five models or my five models to a million. I'm never actually going to get more than 10. You think, well, I don't need that. So that's too much added complexity. Again, least work possible. Don't do it. Do something simpler. So yeah, again, quality, I think, can be tool agnostic, your scalability, the way you collaborate, that kind of idea of how you, how do I get what I've done into the hands of other engineers or non-business stakeholders, that becomes really important. Your reproducibility and, yeah, the continuous X automation stuff. I think I try to frame all of them as being tool agnostic because very talented software engineers and the like don't like being told what tools to use, right? That's just people don't want those big top-down mandates. So not useful to do it. Exactly. Another question coming in from Wissam, he wants to know your thoughts on data versioning. Is there a general rule as to how long we should preserve old data that generated old model versions? Any thoughts there? That is a really tricky one. So I used to work in insurance way back. And when you're dealing with things that affect other people's finances, that's one of the reasons I like energy now, because a lot of the models and predictions I'm making are like, how hot is this battery going to get? And stuff like that. Like, it's not that heavily regulated, right? And I'm upset a battery. Whereas in insurance, and that could be really expensive and costly, right? So it's not like that's not a big concern. But, but in insurance, like, if I have an automated decision that decides your price for your insurance, I think actually under GDPR now, because that came in just as I left, you have the right to go to, if you're in Europe, to go to a company and ask, well, why did it make that decision? And they have to be able to justify it and things like that, which is a big headache, or it was at the time when I was there, like thinking about how do we do that? So other use cases, things like um, when I was a consultant, we worked with a lot of childcare charities. So in Scotland, at least, if you have data pertaining to a child that was in protection, that has to be persisted for 100 years. That ha- they, You have to, be because of like historical abuse cases and things like that. So really depends where you land, right? Typically for me, keep it for as, as long as you're allowed, like that makes sense, that prevents, but take into secure, so maximize how long you can keep it for and then constrain that with security concerns, speak to InfoSec because they might have a lot of problems with that. Cost, like don't keep it if it's super expensive and actually it's, ne- it's never ever going to get used. It's all about like your risk versus reward, right? For what that's going to do. But if you're in a check the industry you're in and what the model was doing, if it's if it's talking about people's prices or sensitive subjects, you might actually have some legal limits that define a, a minimum for how long it has to be persisted for, or you can get into lost trouble. Mm-hmm. And we have more questions. Another follow up question by Vincent. So, when building an MLOps framework at a company, what components would you prioritize? among model registry, monitoring, serving, CICD, and workflows? Yeah, so that's assuming you've got your kind of data persistent stuff in check and that's all happy. Again, your data versioning, right? So if that is done, you've got a nice data platform that does that, then probably the CICD stuff, right? Because it's going to, there's a little bit of culturally then, this is, for me, I think, I go with CICD because a lot of what you might be doing might be new to even very seasoned like CTOs and heads of software engineering or technology or whatever, because because many of them might have had long careers that never touched this stuff. And I've had this before in the past where I've been interviewed and people have said, I don't know any of this, so I have to trust what you're saying. So if you come in and you go, right, here's all these new things you've never thought about, ha ha, that can almost create a little bit of a divide between kind of you and them. And I think it's from the MLOps principles website. But that continuous X thing is a nice kind of, okay, you know about CICD, that's your thing. We want that as well for models. But the, hands up, there's actually a couple of other things we want to add. And they'll just get it. And they'll just like that. And it kind of, you're speaking their language and that allows you to build onto the other stuff. Some of the other ones you mentioned, like model registries. Again, that's kind of a, one of these like feature stores. Another one that I think they're interesting terms and there's loads of ways of solving it like do you need a tool that is specifically a model registry or specifically a feature store or can you just stash serialized versions of the model somewhere and in a nice data store alongside something like does that just work and is that enough for you so i would say prioritize right prioritize the data platform and actually how you get data and treat it and version your data because 
that will serve other use cases as well, and that's easy. Then look at some of the stuff that's going to win you favour and trust with senior sort of techies that maybe haven't touched machine learning. Then just build the thinnest possible slice all the way through from end to end with the simplest tools so you've got something. Then look at bottlenecks and then iterate. That's it. That's the way I kind of always do it because you get into that challenge of premature optimization and focusing on long stuff too early otherwise. Great. So before we let Stephen back at the mic, let's take one final question from chat. So Sidant wants to know, at which point would you want your data scientists or ML developers to stop doing ML ops and hire dedicated ML ops engineers? That's a tough one. That I would go to right down to the individual, not even team or company, right? And a big... So if you read any of my writing and stuff, you'll notice very little of it is that technical because I spent a lot of time managing large teams of people, like 30 to 50 people in the data space. And it becomes all about humans, right? So that is a good question. From a company point of view, like selfish, we're all robots that work for a robot company. You want your specialists doing their specialist work, right? So if you've got like some super genius math wizard, stats person that's great at model development, and then you're now asking them to learn CICD and things like that, they'll be unhappy and actually, it's a waste of time. They're, not, they're going to be expensive and not do it well, right? Whereas you can get specialists in. But then on a human level, a lot of people like me, myself included, got into the game thinking it was going to be one thing, data science, and it didn't turn out to be like that, right? And been through a lot of pain and realized, actually, there's other things that are interesting. So does that data scientist or ML developer want to learn some more of that stuff? Because I promise you, if they want to learn it, they're probably smart, right? Most people in tech are really smart, like we're all nerds. They probably want to learn it. They probably, if you give them the opportunity to cross skill, I always call it. So it's not even like, it's not upskilling. It's not like a new level they're going to reach. It's, it's moving over. So you're going to cross skill into an adjacent technology that's useful. If a data scientist said to me, oh, I want to go and learn front end web development, that would throw, unless like the very specific reasons, that would be, I'd question that because I think that's probably not directly relevant to what you do. But it's only one step to the right and you're in that MLOP space anyway. If they absolutely don't want to do it, then I think you raise that from a cultural point of view. If there's no one in your company that wants to do it, make a big noise and fuss about it and say, right, this will not be delivered well if people do not want to do it. Right. So comes down again to understanding what you need and then really understanding your team, your people and how you can leverage existing skill sets and interests and stuff. Yeah, and in very small companies, it might be tough luck, right? But I would hope that you knew from the outset that this was going to be a problem up front. If you're in a, like a company with less than 10 people, then and you didn't know this was going to happen. There's something wrong, let's say. Yeah. All right, Stephen, I'm sure we have many community questions lined up. <laughs> right. Thanks, Sabine. Yeah, so we have a question from the community and this person is asking, saying, hey, I'm a big data architect working on an ML on ML for a startup based in Mexico for fintech ML data products. One of our expectations is how to adopt and leverage MLOps culture to deploy in an agile manner, uh, deploy ML models in an agile manner. How can I go about this? Because I, I know you mentioned something about the team deploying in agile at Orogami, so maybe that would be helpful. Yeah, so that was... I don't, know, I don't even know if this is a solved problem yet because I still people... I think we're still trying to figure this out and other people have struggled with it. But there was an approach by Elizabeth Hoddinger, that, so she, who's the director for analytics at Greco. I watched years ago, I'm talking like five years ago or something, which was incredible about how they delivered data science within a Greco, which was a, a very, it's a kind of very well thought of data analytics practice within that company. And so first of all, yeah, you get all the stuff in place, you can do stuff like a CICD, like it's very easy to deploy. We have a few techies actually that have like a rule at Origami that I love and I'll steal and take with me forever of get someone to deploy to production on day one, like literally first day, get them to make a small change and deploy it so that there's no fear around it. You can deploy lots and lots and lots. If your organization is one of these places that it has like release trains and it's like six monthly builds or whatever, this could be more difficult, right? But if you're already in that agile space, that's really positive. Now, there's that challenge around a lot of data scientists like the exploration bit a bit too much. And so that challenge around, well, how long is it going to take to get a better model? Well, as long as it takes. So instead of leaving it open-ended, do time box things and 
for me, sometimes, like if we're doing model improvements and things like that, I would say, well, the outcome of this sprint of work isn't a model that's X percent better, right? The outcome is a deeper understanding of what the problem was and what we're doing and a proposal for a solution. And you just, that's always the, the outcome. Now, in that sprint, you might find that the proposal for the solution was actually, here's a new model and it outperformed and I've deployed it. And everyone's like, right, fine, that's fine. Or you might find, no, I've spent a week and a half going down a dead end and I'm no further along. Or you might find I've had a big win and then I got stuck for a bit. And then at the end of each sprint or whatever, it gives you the opportunity to reprioritize. And for me, I think it's a lot around, again, trust, because many organizations don't have that many people that have been through the kind of hard yards of deploying machine learning at scale and doing lots of models and stuff. Or like your product owners, it might be brand new to them, right? So you just need to give them all the control, put all the trust back in their hands by being super visible, like really transparent, and just say to them, look, I, this is almost a bit of a gamble. I can't guarantee an improvement on this model. So it, we need to put some rules around that. And you need to understand that you're taking a bet on a potential improvement and you prioritize that bet against all the other work you could make me do or you could ask us to do. And that will at least give them some understanding of like why, why it's difficult. Because the alternative is to go, yeah, we'll, we'll improve the model. And then you just go away for six months, seven months, eight months, and there's not really an update because actually it turns out the problem's much, much harder than you thought. And being techies and being proud, a lot of us won't put our hands up and say we'll stuck. We'll just keep going and think, oh my God, I need to deliver something. That's like the worst thing you can do, right? So deliver as often as possible, do it as small as possible, and just say, look, I can't guarantee an output. Now, if you're not guaranteeing output and there is no output for like 10 sprints back to back, there is an issue, yeah? But at least the control and transparency is there and it should be obvious to the people that need that control. Right, right. So there's the, you shouldn't like think about velocity as a metric when you're thinking about that? Yeah, mixed bag on metrics. They can be really useful, but okay. they can be really useful, but I find they're a bit of a, it takes a lot of maturity to get to where they're useful. Like, right. like, I think you need long-lived teams that don't change. You need product owners that, that have a, like a kind of natural understanding of how big a story is. And yeah, if it's a new thing, I think yeah. you can almost create an industry out of doing the metrics. And then it's actually all noise at the moment because the models mm. are bad, right? Right. Thanks for sharing that again, Adam. And there's another person asking this question. It says, how can we shape our MLOps culture to only focus on the most important things that solve our problem? I mean, we see a lot of tools, frameworks, vendors pop out every day. What can we do to ensure that this is not a distraction for us? Yeah, that's great. And again, one I kind of think about a lot. So my approach, and it might be wrong, but my approach is, again, least work possible. What's the thinnest solution that I can build? Like, can I do it in one day? Can I put... I used to joke when I was a consultant, I used to joke about the first sprint of a project being, I used to call them coin flip models. And essentially the first model, this is, I was more data science then, the first model we would put out would be a random number generator. And that was it. Because actually getting all the data pipelines set up, all the deployment, the monitoring, all that together was a bigger bit of the job. And when that is in place actually you can point one data scientist at at a random number generator and it becomes really easy to start building better and better models. Whereas if you concentrate on a really good model that takes ages, then you put it in and you realize it's also going to take ages to put all the monitoring and the comparison stuff together, A-B testing, all that. It becomes like you're getting a long way before you've even tested if there's other solutions. So kind of flip that on its head. So again, yeah, least work possible. What's the thinnest thing I can build that solves the problem even if it's not at the right scale, not at the right speed, whatever, then pick the bottlenecks that matter the most and just start chipping away at them and stop as soon as you solve it. Like, don't go, right, well, we can do two weeks worth of work and, and literally get it just over the threshold or we'll do four weeks and we have a world-class solution. Like, okay, that's maybe a bit much, but, but do the two weeks, get it over the edge and then think about the other stuff. And you might find that actually we want the world-class solution. That's the important bit for us now. And again, it puts that trust in the hands of the people that, that need it. Right. Thanks, Adam, for sharing that. So, and we have yet another question from the MLS community. And this person is saying, I'm a senior MLE at an LH stage uh, AI first product startup. And I'd love to know if you could elaborate on the technical aspects of a solid MLOps culture. 
what I mean is that if I adopt a CI/CD approach to our team's workflow, for example, could that be considered as building a solid MLOps culture? If so, what other technical aspect, technical best practices would you encourage towards this path? Yeah, so caveat this with, I did, I've only done like a full-on builder team here and I've, I've done it slightly like we did, we were consultants in my old place. So we understood how to do MLOps and deploy it. I've not worked at thousands of places and I haven't got other cultures to compare. I have spoken to lots of people in other in the communities and I talked to lots of other writers and things like that. I care a lot about this stuff. So what does a solid culture look like? For me, it's one where people care, really care at every level, technical level, the data people care, the non-data people care, the kind of the business stakeholders don't see it as a dark art and a bit of voodoo in the corner. They get it and they understand what retraining might be on a very, very high level. So people care and understand like why you exist, right, as an MLOps or an MLE, yeah. Then you're getting the right levels of conversation and people wanting to take ownership of parts of it. And it's not like, it's not the project and like, or whatever, the product and then the MLE team over here. I think you need to be, yeah, well integrated and people need to care. And then very mature, I think we get to a point where actually it's almost not a concern, like easy enough to do that software engineers that have never touched it before can get it pretty quickly. You can hire in super genius kind of data scientists that, haven't got the programmatic skills or whatever that it's easy enough for them to use and things like that. So it almost becomes invisible. There was a chat about, I think it's, I think it was a from a DevOps book, but it talks about how every good, I might have this wrong, but every good DevOps engineer's mission should be to put themselves out of a job. Like get it all set up so that it all works and you never have to touch it. Like that should be the kind of dream. I, I'll try and find that because I don't think it's DevOps. But I, I like that as an MLE thing, right? Set your MLE, or MLOps platform up in such a way that you can just hand off and it just works, right? That should be the goal. But that's really hard to achieve and you'll probably not get there. Yeah, as, as a follow-up question again, last episode we had a conversation with Andy and he talked about the four Ps of like good any good software methodologies, right? People, the products, the patterns, the process. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but how do these four sort of consolidate in building a proper culture? The patterns in terms of like the software, the coding patterns and everything, but the products you're building, the people and building the products as well as the processes. How do these four sort of help build a solid culture? If you can. This is Andy McMahon you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So I'm like a big love for Andy. Kind of about, I try and go to every talk he gives because he's also in Scotland. He knows his stuff, right? And the book, if you've not read it, it's really good. Yeah. So for, I focus almost mostly on the people side of things because I think if I can convince other people to care and, and take ownership, then it's kind of like that's usually the hardest part of the problem is because there's, again, right. I think most people in tech are really clever and they can put their hands to it. You need to right size it for what you're building, the kind of the yeah the product. There's this distinction I always think that is for some companies the machine learning and the AI is the product. In which right. case, the maturity needs to be really, really high. Like the company doesn't exist without it. And for other companies, like when I was in insurance, right, there's the product and the service and it's just kind of nice to have and it will just maybe add some value. In which case, there's less, it's less important to things. And you have to kind of right-size your own culture for that. If you've worked with me, you'll, you'll laugh when I say this. I like to be processes light, but I like to create processes for everything I do. So mainly because I'm an idiot, right? And I think that I will not remember how to do this in the future. So what do I think now? Write it all down. Is there like an idiot-proof way of writing this out so that I can follow it in the future, scale it, communicate it, and translate it for other people that don't care as much as I do and stuff like that. So yeah, that probably be my... Did I touch all four pieces? I think I did. Not patterns. <laughs> yeah, okay. Patterns is an interesting one in the... I think you've got to be... I think you've got to be quite experienced to spot them I think you have to be quite zoomed out and quite experienced and have had the benefit of a lot of information to do that well. So at this point in time, I rely heavily on on people like Andy who have had that experience, who've written the book, who've have put so much thought and effort into writing patterns that it's useful, or leaning heavily on something like Kubeflow, which has got, okay, here's it spelled out for me. Design, the one from Google, the machine learning design patterns. That's a really good book as well. Like, because you can obviously get to a whiteboard and draw this up from scratch yourself, right? And actually, if you're doing the thinnest possible platform, 
that might be the best way to do it. But you'll bump into concerns. I always like to think, has someone else gone out there and done a PhD in this for me? If they have, what do they think? Because I can't be bothered thinking about this. Is there, are there a load of really clever MIT grads that have solved this problem? And if they have, I'll just see if I can sort of adopt what they've done. Because again, I think you've got to be really clever and have a lot of information to do that. And you can go through that thinking. And you should challenge axioms and patterns all the time, right? That's how technology develops. But we're so young in what MLOps is. There's not, there's not that many good books out there on it that I think lean heavily on what's out there seems to get good, sort of good traction. Right. And finally, this is a scenario-based question I actually popped up from the conversation in MLOps community. And this person says, suppose you've been selected as the owner of an MLOps initiative in your company for the coming year. Your goal is to spread the MLOps culture, review the entire system for operationalizing analytics. You have to map the ML use cases. And for each use case, you want to get an idea of the possible process requirements, such as team involvement, delivery process, infrastructure requirements, and all the technical details. Depending on the stakeholder you will interact with, eh, which of the topics would you prioritize first? What types of questions would you be asking first to lay the groundwork for something like this? Yeah, that's good, isn't it? Oh, okay. So that, right, that, I think, now this comes from the fact that I think a lot of data, machine learning engineers and data scientists haven't come into the industry through the software engineering route, right? So we don't know about a lot of stuff that really exists. If you go into software engineering heavily enough, and I'm learning this stuff at the moment, there's a load of tools for this already. So something I only learned about very recently was this idea of event storming, and it's taken from like domain-driven design, where you, you get... And it's fascinating. I've, I've seen workshops get run with it recently. It's a really cool approach where you get all the stakeholders in the room with loads of post-it notes, and you just timeline the whole end-to-end process. And you've got techies in there, you've got the business stakeholders, the end users, everyone trying to figure things out so that you can then spot bottlenecks and systems. That's, there's cool workshops and approaches out there to do it. For me, it's like saying the same thing over and over again here, but what's the smallest thing you can deliver to increment like what they're doing? And ask people that kind of question, like what's the next, what's the smallest thing that makes it looks a bit better for you? And have a bit of an end state as well. Where do you want to get to? So this should all line up with like your data strategy and your tech strategy stuff, which there's loads of chat about. But what's the smallest step I can take that's kind of a no regret thing that gets us just to the on the next rung of the ladder towards what our, our North Star or our kind of goal will be? Yeah, what was that initiative stakeholder capture? Try and keep it in the hands of people that skilled it as well. Like if you're a data scientist, right, and you've been asked to do this. That sounds very close to what a product owner is supposed to do. Maybe go and find a product owner and just go, look, I need some help here. How do I do this kind of thing? There's some cool books out there, things like Sprint by Jake Knapp. That's a really cool book about doing a five-day design sprint where you spend like four days with pen and paper. And then eventually on the last day, you might do some coding to build. Like It's all about finding the right thing to build, not building the best solution. But look at what... Imagine it wasn't an MLOps problem or it wasn't a machine learning problem. How would they do it in, in the kind of land of software, right? Because they've been doing it a lot longer and they've actually built some really cool tools for doing this. That's probably my approach. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. Right. So to begin summarizing our discussion here, Adam, could you tell us, this was a question in chat from Buwan, which part of the MLOps task or MLOps do you find the most cumbersome? I do. Again, I think it's the... The front end bit, because I find that like, if you think in like streams, the downstream stuff ends up being quite similar. Like once you standardize it upstream, the downstream stuff should be similar. So once you've got your kind of monitoring sort of processes in place, you understand your reframe, your retraining strategies and all that, like all that ruling is in place. You can build systems that just automatically do that and scale nicely and whatever. But getting to that point and the upstream stuff, like getting all the data in the right shape in the right place, at the right scale, frequency, whatever. That is really, really cumbersome. And I, like, I think it, try and avoid feature stores if you can, because that feels like let's add another tool to cover over the cracks in what we've built from our data landscape. Our data architecture is a bit wonky because it's legacy or it's grown organically or this was never a concern. So let's add something else so that we can do MLOps nicely. I'd rather you kind of iterate the actual architecture and stuff like that. So that's kind of the cumbersome bit. Because again, like teams don't want to 
you don't want that many niche tools if like you want to limit complexity and, and like these tools adding new tools all the time as well for very niche things like MLOps. Other, there's not other benefits you can't kind of rope in other people to get them to care about it so I think it's the up, upstream stuff of getting data in the right place data versioning data quality all that stuff becomes cumbersome because some people just don't understand it and why it needs to be done the downstream stuff should then just work like once you sort of set up it just kind of the closer you get to like model serving or whatever the, the kind of it's more in your domain and you just do what you like yeah yeah and so to flip the burger and and on, on a more positive note here, what, what aspect of MLOps do you find the most enjoyable or intriguing at the moment? I love hearing about how other people are solving the problem because it's not solved. And so I love the people side of it because it's really difficult. And I love hearing about how other people do it because there's a million ways of doing it. And like you, the, I'll try and get the links said, but the, you look at the Amazon roadmap, the Google roadmap or maturity models and the... Facebook ones, and they're all completely different. Like they don't line up whatsoever. And these are like massive companies that have kind of sold it for themselves, but there's no consensus. So I like sort of cherry picking the best bits and trying to find that. I like exploring new solutions to the same problem and things like that. When it's all pieced together and it works as well, like when you see something go over a threshold, automatically retrain, and that's just very satisfying as well. Like you feel like you've got your Rude Goldberg machine on the go, and it's all it's all quite nicely, but. Yeah, I don't know. Hard one. Right. Well, it's time for us to begin wrapping things up here, Adam. So thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you. And yeah, have you kind of like walk us through this thinnest MLOps layer <laughs> principle. Very, very good stuff. So before we wrap things up, can you tell us how people can kind of follow what you're doing online and maybe get in touch with you? Yeah, yeah. So look, I'm on most of my kind of outreach stuff on LinkedIn these days. I've got some stuff on Medium and I'm on Twitter, but that's almost exclusively automation of my other stuff. So <laughs> not as good at replying on there. But yeah, look, grab me on LinkedIn or in some of the communities. Yeah, on Slack. I'm, I'm in a few of them as well. So if you find me, please say hello and you'll hear me ramble some more about stuff, right? <laughs> All right. Excellent. So thanks everyone for joining again today. We'll be back as usual in two weeks on the 17th of August. And next time our guest will be Amber Roberts and we'll be talking about embracing responsible AI for ML models in production. So in the meantime, we'll see you on socials and then in the MLOps community Slack, there's an invite in chat. If you're not there already, you can submit questions in advance and after an episode or talk to us about anything MLOps related there. And don't forget to catch up with past episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you like. So thanks again and take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events. And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes. Thanks and see you next time.